0: When you hear the word, the Lord's Supper, what comes to your mind? How do you perceive the Lord's Supper in your own mind when you hear it? You know, I became a born-again Christian in a parachurch ministry in college in Texas. And I was converted in that ministry, and it was natural for me to spend much time in that ministry, uh, missions organization. But the leader, who was the missionary, a missionary commissioned by a local church, he always taught us that we are not a church. We, that organization, parachurch, was not a local church. And he always told us to go to church and be involved in a church. And there were local pastors who were not fond of us, uh, of a uh, parachurch ministry. And they criticized us in saying this way that you guys are not a church. We knew that. But they still said it. You're not, you are not a church. Because to be a church, you should be, ele- ele- you should be able to celebrate the Lord's Supper. But you can't because you are not a church. And they were criticizing us in that fashion. When our own leader was teaching us that we are not a church, that's why we do not baptize anyone and we do not celebrate the Lord's Supper. But anyway, so that's how I was introduced to the Lord's Supper. So my impression at the time was that Lord's Supper was something that must be important, but not essential because we couldn't celebrate it. And it really looked to me not more than a ritual. You come and you, you eat and drink. So I thought, okay, that's important, but, you know, not really. That was kind of my impression. At the time, the ministry was really focused on these things, and I'm sure many of you could testify to this too. Things that we talked about were the gospel, prayer meetings, Bible studies, missions, conversions, discipleship programs, and so on. Those were the key words for me, not the Lord's Supper. I spent two years in Austin, Texas, and two years in Houston. And as I was preparing this message, I looked back those years, my college years. And I couldn't recall a Sunday that I partook in the Lord's Supper. And it surprised me. During those four and a half years, I attended two Baptist churches. I don't think I ever missed a Sunday, except a few times in Houston, because at the time I was going to the, the mega church. And if you get there just a little late, there's no parking. So I would drive around for 20 minutes and I would just go home. So except for those few times, I don't think I ever really missed a Sunday. But those four and a half years of my college, I don't remember celebrating the Lord's Supper. So what happened to me? I came to a seminary in Philadelphia. I came to that seminary because I just wanted to get away from Texas. And um, during those years in that seminary, you learn things. And that time, my seminary years, taught me the importance of the Lord's Supper. Why? Because I went to a seminary? Well, no, because... I was able to see it from the word that it was indeed important. Remember one time I told you that we, some of us, had the president of seminary in a minivan. And he asked us, about three of us, what did the Westminster Seminary give you? He asked, because we were graduates from the seminary. He asked us, so what did we give you? And the first thing that that came out of my mouth was the authority of the Scripture, I told him. Peter Littleback, he was sitting right here. So he asked me, so I said, the authority of the Scripture. If I could summarize my four years in the seminary, three and a half, that would be it, the authority of the Scripture. If I may add a couple more to that. Second would be the union with Christ, the concept, the theology of it. And the third item would be the Lord's Supper. Not the millennial kingdom, not baptism, not even sola fide, Reformation stuff, but the Lord's Supper. Those three things, scripture, union with Christ, and the Lord's Supper. Those were the three important changes that took place in my own life as I studied the scriptures and all the teachings that there was for me. Today, my aim is this. Again, just like my deacon's sermon, my aim for you today is to see the importance of the Lord's Supper. That's it. When you see and consider the Lord's Supper, I want you to see how important this is and vital this is for you and for your Christian life. I want you to see that. But for, in order for me to do that, I need to talk about two things. A theological overview and a historical overview. Today's text, I am not going to go in too much. That's not what I could do today. So I was going to do two things today, a theological overview and a historical overview. But this morning, as I was reading through my own sermon, that was just too long. So... <laughs> Today what I have to do is to give you an overview. 20,000 feet high overview and a big picture for you. But as I've been praying up till this moment, this is not an easy thing. I hope you do not fall asleep, but I understand that it is a very difficult one. But by the grace of God, let me try. Let me try. On the surface level, The Lord's Supper looks simple enough. You take the bread and wine and you eat and you drink to remember Christ. Simple as that. Think about other things in church life missions, Sunday school, evangelism, conferences, and so on. For those, you need what? People, volunteers. You need a venue. You need money to do things. You need a strategy or plan. But Lord's Supper, it is really simple that Christ has instituted the Lord's Supper with bread and wine. Once again, he didn't institute it with the meat, like barbecue, or exotic stuff, like lobster. Lobster. But bread and wine, which was a a staple food for the Jewish people at the time. Something that you eat. Something that you have in possession. But it is not as simple as that. And today I am going to hit a few bullet points. And you could just sit back and just listen. But I am going to follow an outline from our confession. So this is not a random stuff. But I am following chapter 27. And chapter 29, the sacraments and the Lord's Supper. Not everything, but few bullet points for you to see. The Lord's Supper is really not as simple as that. And let me begin with this. What is the Lord's Supper, as we have seen from confessions and Q&As here? They will say it is a sacrament of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ. What is this? It is a sacrament of the New Testament, ordained by Jesus Christ. So the question would be, then what is the sacrament? Sacrament, what do you mean by sacrament? Sacrament, the word comes from Latin word that translates Greek word, which is mysterion, mystery. As you know, that word mystery is used in the New Testament in what fashion? Usually when we say it is mysterious, it is hidden. But in, New, in the New Testament, mysterion, mysterio, mysterion of the gospel is that something that is now revealed. So sacrament is really the Latin word, sacramentum of the Greek word, which is mysterion. But again, in the New Testament, that teaches us Christ has revealed all things to us in his gospel. So it is not hidden, but revealed. That's the word in the New Testament. So the sacraments are a sacraments are non-verbal communications from God. That's what sacraments are. Not to hide, but now to reveal. Reveal what? Reveal now Christ and his sufferings. So, What is Lord's Supper? Lord's Supper is a sacrament. Then the question is, what are the sacraments? That is why the confession doesn't start with the Lord's Supper or the baptism. But they discuss the sacraments first. And if you could turn down to the 27th, I want you to look at that, the very first sentence, the definition of it. What are the sacraments? Now you ask. Sacraments are what? How carefully they put word holy, right? Sacraments are not simply signs, some random stuff. But it is holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace. This is very, very important for the things that we are going to talk about in coming weeks. Sacraments are Skip the middle and go to the last one. Of the covenant of grace. I want you to understand that. Sacraments are not random items, but it is holy signs and seals. But it's not simply holy signs and seals, but of the covenant of grace. That is, sacraments are to be understood in the context of the covenant. That is very, very important. So unless you understand what the sacraments are and how the sacraments are used in the Bible, then we are not really grounded in the Bible in the sense that sacraments are always given, talked about, and practiced in the context of what? Of the covenant. Sacraments are holy, signs and seals. And we may talk about that in coming weeks. Sign is simple. Sign points toward the reality. Seal is a different story. This week, I spent a day reading a dictionary on seal here. Seal. The usage of the seals in the Bible and beyond. Took me all day. Probably I will report it back to you. Well, usually we think of seals as simply sealing the envelope to preserve the content. Seal it. Scroll. Sealing the scroll. But also sealing is used in a sense as that you put your signature on. So that seal would signify authenticating that you are truly the person who is signing this. So there are a couple of meanings that that you should know. So... You see how this thing works? If I want to talk about baptism, you cannot go straight into baptism because baptism is a covenant sign and seal. Lord's Supper, to properly understand it, it's not simply, hey, let's remember him. So bread represents body, wine, his blood, let's think about him. But they have carefully thought this out, and what that means is when Christ instituted the Lord's Supper, He did not invent this. God of the Bible has been doing this from the beginning. God promises something and God gives signs. That's the way God dealt with His people through His covenants. Briefly, how many covenants are there when we talk about covenant? When you come to a Presbyterian Church, Reformed Church, we usually, as we subscribe to the Confession, Westminster Confession, we will call ourselves Covenant Theology Believing Church. You have heard about Covenant Theology? It is mouthful. But there are three. Yeah, one. There is one covenant, but in three forms. One is with the Father and the Son from all eternity, the covenant of peace. The theologians call it. Just simple words, try to remember. Covenant of peace in eternity. And there is another covenant in the garden that Adam had to pass, but he failed. We call that the covenant of works. Once he failed, Christ comes along and all the successive covenants are called the covenants of grace. Covenant of grace. So covenant of peace, covenant of works, and covenant of grace. Those are the three covenants that we usually think about. Now, sacraments, all these Reformed confessions will ask the question, how many are there in the New Testament? We will know and we will say what? Two. We have two from the Bible in the New Testament. Why do these Reformed confessions ask the question? Because Reformation took place in the backdrop of medieval Catholicism, right? How many are there in the Catholic Church, Catholic theology? How many sacraments are there, do you know? There are seven, and there still are seven today. And these are the seven sacraments of the Catholic. Isis always taught us to call it Roman communion because it's not a church, but anyhow. Sacraments of the Catholic Church are the seven, these things. Baptism, Eucharist, that is the Lord's Supper. Confirmation, like something like what we do, when the age comes, then children will confess their own uh, faith. Confirmation. Also, penance, that is the, the act of repentance. And there's something called anointing of the sick. You heard about extreme unction. They take an oil, a vial of oil, and they pour, pour it on a dying person. And there is marriage, they see marriage as sacrament, and also holy orders for the priests, priesthood. They have seven. So if you read our own confession, 27, fourth paragraph, though it is not there, it says it explicitly, teaching the people of Reformation. There be only two sacraments ordained by Christ our Lord in the gospel. That is to say, baptism and the supper of the Lord. Simple enough. Next topic is this. In the language, in the Confessions language, and when you read those um, Reformation theology, you will hear a lot about cause. And they have few different words about the cause. They talk about material cause. They call, talk about instrumental cause and they talk about efficient cause. Why is that important? Because you will find the Reformation side arguing that faith is the instrumental cause of justification. You know that. From Catholic theology, what is the instrumental cause of justification? Do you know? Baptism is. In the baptism of infants in Catholic church, because of that baptism causes the first justification. We deny that. So you will, you will encounter those languages. What kind of cause? Also, in our own confession, 27.3, that is third paragraph, it talks something about personal holiness. And I think it is vital for you to consider that Listen to this. It's our own confession 27.3 says this. The grace which is exhibited in or by the sacraments rightly used is not conferred by any power in them. That is Catholic position. There's no power in and of itself in the Lord's Supper, in the, in the, in the bread, in the wine, or the baptism. Neither does the efficacy of a sacrament Depend upon the piety or intention of him that does administer it, but upon the work of the Spirit. That is mouthful. But let me explain. That is, I think, important because these matters did not arise from a debate, but from Christian history. What they have in the, in, in mind in that paragraph is what is known as Donatist controversy in the 4th century, about A.D. 300 and 400 at the time. There was a great persecution in Roman Empire. When persecution comes, and when people are put to death, what happens usually? There will be people who will die for their faith, and there are a group of people who will not, And they will recant. They will deny Christ. They will renounce Christian faith because they don't want to die. They don't want to die. You will see that over and over again. Same thing happened. There was a great persecution and people died. But the vast majority of the priests at the time, pastors, they recanted. Inevitably, the persecution will end. It's not forever. So when that ended, what happens? The people who denied Christ, recanted and renounced Christ, they come back to the ministry. So people ask the question, That minister gave me baptism, but he is a traitor. Latin word would be terrace." They are the traitors. But they come back to church and they didn't want to receive sacraments from them anymore. Make sense? So there was a huge controversy. But the Donatist said, so the efficacy of the sacraments depend on that person's holiness. Not how holy he is. But if he denied faith he cannot come back and do the sacraments. There was Donatist controversy. They said, no, you cannot do it. And because you denied Christ, all those people who received baptism and Lord's Supper, you need to be rebaptized. It is invalid. There is no more. It is not valid because that man betrayed Christ. We would say, well, wow, that makes sense. But there he was, Augustine. You heard about Augustine. He wrote a treatise against Donatists, saying they are wrong. You are wrong. The efficacy of the sacraments do not depend on that person, even though he was a sinner. He is a sinner. It really depends on the words of Christ and his intentions and his will. So that that's the Orthodox position, Augustine's position. That happened exactly the same thing had happened in my own country in history. When Japanese came, there were people who were willing to suffer and die, Christian ministers, but the vast majority didn't. They bowed down to Shinto Shrine. You heard about Shinto Shrine, right? So people bowed down. And when the war ended, that that there was liberation, the freedom came. Same thing happened. Those people who recanted, they came back to the ministry. And people, the minority said, that's wrong. You cannot go back to the ministry. You bow down. Or at least you should, you should repent. That were those, those were the minority pastors. But the majority didn't want to listen to that. And said, it really becomes now annoying. Let us kick them out. So that's the In a nutshell, Presbyterian history of my home country. But anyway, that's why 27.3 is there. It does not depend on the personal holiness, but upon the work of the Holy Spirit. Though that person may be a corrupt person, really it is the working of the Spirit based upon the Word of God that it is now to be preserved. Something to think about. Now, the Lord's Supper. When you pick up a book to study the Lord's Supper, now we are, I'm moving into the 29th chapter, the Lord's Supper. To study the Lord's Supper is to study the Reformation history itself. Reformation happened against Rome, Correct? But there were plenty of disagreements between the magisterial reformers themselves. So it is correct to say there were reformations than a single reformation triggered by Luther. We think of it as Luther and Reformation. But there are different kinds of reformations, depending on the person, depending on the city, where, who is the leading figure, things like that. And in between the Reformation camp, there came into two sharp disputes by the Lutherans. Obviously, Luther was alive at the time. Lutherans, led by Luther himself. And have you heard about a man named Zwingli? Zwingli is from Zurich, Switzerland. Switzerland was an independent city, whereas Lutheran cities were ruled by the princes. So different historical and political settings. So Zwingli was more free to do his theology and his reformation than Luther. But Luther was a medieval person. So he brought or retained a lot of his past, his Catholic priesthood. And one of the things that Those within the Reformation camp that they disagreed was on the Lord's Supper. This is a big thing. So final split came after both sides, they understood they had to be united to fight Catholic Church. But they had final disagreement and they went separate ways. That happened in 1529 in what is called Marburg Colloquy in the city or the castle of Marburg. So both sides came, they debated, and they said, no, we do not agree, we'll go separate ways. And even 500 years later, that's why you have Lutheran church, right? And we have Reformed churches. What's interesting thing about that is, when you read those debates within the camp of the Reformation side. There is not much of a discussion on infant baptism, though we will get to it. Why? Because all sides at the time were baptizing infants, all Reformers, except for this new group called Anabaptists. But that's a separate story. So they are not debating infant baptism. Nobody it really is. They are just simply condemning Anabaptists. But the Lord's Supper is a major, major issue that is splitting the Reformation camp. Zwingli dies, and and the leading figure is now Calvin. And the language of our confession retained the teachings of Calvin himself. So I'm going to introduce a few words, and this really is the main point for today. Everyone, Catholics, Lutherans, Zwinglians, and Calvin, and we'll call them Reformed, Continental Reformed. They all affirm the real presence of Christ. But they differ on how Christ is present in, his, in the Lord's Supper. So I'm going to throw out a few words, and it is easy words, and you could, you could understand it. Catholic side, we will put the word transubstantiation. Probably you have heard about that. Transsubstantiation. The substance transforms. that's what it means. That's what they believe. Lutherans believe, and we'll use the term, consubstantiation. Con is with. So their language is, Christ is present really, in his body and in his blood, in, with and under the elements. Those are the words that they will use. Catholics transformed. Lutherans, no, Christ is literally present in, with, and under the elements of wine and bread. Zwinglians, though this is a misrepresentation, we Zwingli, I don't think he, he said it in this way, because I've read him. Zwingli said this Lord's Supper is a simply memorial. We're simply remembering him. But Calvin supplemented it by saying no, it is not simply us remembering, but Christ is really present with us through His Spirit. We say, oh, sure, obviously, but that was not so obvious to them. So let me, let me explain this just briefly. The essence and the accidents. Essence is the essence. Accidents are the outward Shapes or things like that. So we usually use the example of doggy dogs. There are different breeds, different kinds of dogs. But the dogginess, what it means to be a dog, will not change. We have golden retriever, that is a dog. And there could be a chihuahua, that could be a dog. Dogginess, that is immaterial, but it is essence. That is the term. Essence does not, they, they, they does not change. But the outward, the accidents may change. So, with that in mind, ex- essence and substance basically same thing. Listen to Catholic argument. The substance of elements, substance of elements is transformed into the real body and the real blood of Christ is their theology of their celebration of mass. While the essence that is kind of unseen changes, the essence of bread and wine is tra- they are transformed into the essence of the blood and flesh of Christ. Literally, the outward appearance or the accidents do not change. So you see, in that theology of mass, there is a uh, double miracle going on. One is transformation of the essence of the substance. That's that's a miracle that is happening in front of you. But at the same time, the outward extents do not change. So there's retaining of the appearance that also is, they say, miracle. What's the implication of that? Implication of Catholic Mass, as you see in Catholic churches even today, is that when a priest comes up and he prays. And breaks the bread. And during that prayer time. These things really change into. The real body and real blood of Christ. Something that we cannot. I cannot comprehend. But that's what is happening in front of you. What does that mean then? That means. Jesus' real body. Is broken. Over and over again. And sacrificed. Over and over again. Whenever they celebrate. Their mass. When you go home, uh, Google this word, Catholic Tabernacle. Catholic Tabernacle. And see what it is in the images section. You know what Catholic Tabernacles are? When you look at the table, their table is always in the middle, in the center. You will see a golden box, right in the, you, you usually have not have noticed it, but you will see what is called a golden tabernacle or wood, usually gold now, they put those elements in it. Why? Because now it is not bread and wine. It is now Christ's body and blood, literally. That is why my professor at the time, Carl Truman, told me, that told us, that in medieval church, let's say, medieval church, you walk into a German village and a church. Everything is done in Latin, as you know. It is sung in Latin, prayed in Latin. Everything is done in front of you. And you stand in the bag. And he to- told us that they usually didn't serve the wine. Wine was usually preserved for the priests in the front. Why? Because if you spill the wine, you are spilling, spilling now the blood of Christ. Literal blood of Christ. So that was how it was practiced. So I'm turning to our own confession. 29, paragraph 6 says this. Against that understanding, transubstantiation of Catholic theology, we say it is repugnant, not to Scripture alone. It is to Scripture too, but even to common sense and reason. I like that. There is no transformation of anything in how you define it, and it is contrary to our common sense and reason. And it overthrows the nature of the sacrament and has been and is the cause of manifold superstitions of gross idolatries. Did you hear that? It is not because we don't like Pope not because they are too ritualistic, but because what they say it is that they are doing on the table. And how that could be possibly be the case? Because of their theology based upon philosophy and century upon century people improving upon their own ideas. Lutheran, Luther himself was present in that Marburg colloquy, colloquy. And probably you have heard that famous phrase. He was saying to the Zwinglians, saying, what part of, when Jesus said, this is my body, do you not understand? So he, Luther, wanted to do the literal translation. Jesus said, this is, est, in Latin. He didn't speak German. But Est, this is my body. And what part of is do you not understand, he said. And the split of the Reformation camp was done and it has been ever since. Now, the question is this. When you understand the Lord's Supper in that fashion, by the way, that's all you did in medieval church. You walk into a church, why do you go to church? Not, listen to, not to listen to a sermon, not listen to some kind of uh, music. You go there to receive the sacraments, that's it. The entire church life was about sacraments. And this will play an important role for the Reformation. Because Reformation was reaction against their penance, one of the sacraments. Indulgence, you heard about that. It is part of their system. But anyhow, the question becomes this, if you understand the sacrament to be the central part of Christian life. question is this, if the physical body of Christ is in heaven, because he ascended as God-man, how can it also be present wherever on earth the sacrament is being observed and all at the same time? The question now becomes What? On a debate on the two natures of Christ. See. Have you ever pulled a potato from the ground? I have. You pull a potato, what happens? In the ground, there's another potato. You keep pulling. Keep pulling. That's how you harvest potato. Potatoes. And this is like this. We start with the Lord's Supper. And you begin to study that. There's another potato. Another potato. Another potato. It it just doesn't end. And another potato is two natures of Christ. So debate really is on the two natures of Christ, which is really hitting at the heart of the gospel itself. So let me read this section to you. Catholics and the Lutherans, the doctrines of transubstantiation and consubstantiation give a divine attribute to the human nature of Christ. Did you hear that? They said the real body is present, correct? Real body of Christ is the human nature of Christ, not divine nature, correct? Where is Jesus now? As God-man, he is up there. He's ascended. With his scars and everything, he went up, remember? So, he is there physically as God-man. But Catholics, Lutherans, you say Christ is really, literally, physically present, whether it is trans or con, if, if that's what you believe, the question that we must ask is then how is it possible that Christ's human body, which is now just transformed by the prayer of a consecration of a priest, happens everywhere on a Sunday? How could he be everywhere, you see? So they had to come up with another theology. You see, when your theology is deficient, you have to make another theology, another theology, another theology based upon human teaching. And and the compromise is what is known as communication of attributes. I know this is really not essential, but just listen. This is how they try to cope with that simple question. How is Christ present everywhere within his body? And they said, well... Christ's divine nature is communicated to his divine human nature. What's wrong with that? Well, it is wrong because it denies the Council of Chalcedon, where two natures of Christ is present in the person of Christ without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. right, so in order for you to explain your position, you have to say Christ's physical body is present everywhere because at that time, divine nature is communicated to the human nature in such a fashion that he could be omnipresent, which to us is the confusion of two natures. It cannot be. If I could be present everywhere, then I'm not a human. Simple as that. But that's what they believe. That's what Catholics believe. That's what the Lutherans traditionally believe. And then, what is our position? I'm almost done for today. Can, see if you could understand the reform position explained by R.C. Sprong. What we think is happening. What we think is happening. Try to listen and see if you could understand it. Christ is truly present in his divine nature so that we really feed upon the risen Christ. Christ's human nature is at the right hand of God in heaven. His divine nature is at the Lord's table where we meet Him. When we meet Him, we meet the One who still perfectly unites the human and divine natures. Through His divine nature, we commune with the whole Christ. We meet the whole person of Jesus at the Lord's table, not because his human nature can be physically present here and all over the world, but because, uh, because the divine nature that is perfectly united to the human nature does come to visit us. When he comes, he does not come without the whole person. Instead of focusing on physical body and physical blood of Christ to be present through whatever theology that you want to use, we go in a different route and saying it is the divine nature of Christ because that is omnipresent. But in our doctrine of the person of Christ, we know his natures, two natures, do not exist in separation but always in the person of Christ, remember? So even though it is his divine nature, that's how he is omnipresent, but at the same time, because of that, we will understand his whole person to be present with us. And who could understand this? Who could really fathom this mystery of the Lord's Supper? So in our own first paragraph, as they were giving the definition of the Lord's Supper, it said this, again I read the first few lines, Our Lord Jesus in the night wherein he was betrayed instituted the sacrament of his body and blood called the Lord's Supper to be observed in his church unto the end of the world for the perpetual remembrance of the sacrifice of himself in his death. Today's text Though I am not going to go into full exposition, we heard two times through Paul, but from God, that this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Again, about the cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Both times, two times. You are to remember me was the point. As we said, the sacraments are non-verbal communications from God. Why is that? Why is that important? From the beginning, God did not simply preach to us. But by condescending to our weak state, if you remember, God also gave us signs. So that signs like visual aid, you see it to be reminded of what God has done for you. Likewise, in our Christian life, oftentimes we put high value on preaching. Rightly so. But at the same time, in God's wisdom and mercy. Wisdom and mercy. Christ has given us the sacrament of the Lord's Supper to supplement His preaching and His Word. And I myself have experienced that grace in my own life. You come to church and you expect me, pastor, to preach something, something that is biblical and something that is something for you to take home. But what if if you are in a situation where you are so discouraged, downtrodden, that nothing that a minister says from the pulpit will make sense. You know what I mean? That was the case when I came to this church a few years ago. So when Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. I know exactly what he is saying. When I came to this church, I remember nothing that was done from the pulpit mattered to me. It is not to say anything about the man. I was just sitting there, not feeling anything. There was a time that I wouldn't read God's Word because I couldn't, I couldn't read. Simple as that, I couldn't read the Bible. I couldn't read anything, I couldn't listen to anything. Uh, each and every time I try to, whatever ex- I'm exposed to, my heart will just pound and it's just hard to breathe. So in such a moment, when I came to a church here in this church, When they celebrated, when you celebrate the Lord's Supper for the first time in my life, it gave me that comfort or encouragement from God himself, which were worth more than 10,000 words from the pulpit. Finest preaching and theologians, no matter. They are essential and they are important. But it supplements that, 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 that weak state for me at the time. It helped me. And basically, as I was taking the bread and wine, I was simply saying, Oh, I couldn't think. I can't think. But, oh, I see it. I see it. I feel it in front of me. And I could be assured that He is, by His word and promise, that He is present with me and for me. So that, that, that experience never left me. So this is more than simply a ritual. Final word is, what are we supposed to remember? In our own confession, it talks about perpetual remembrance of his, sacrifice of himself in his death. So I was thinking, right, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are to remember Him. But what does that mean? To remember Him. His death, sure. Death, His broken body, His shed blood, I understand. But it didn't come naturally to me. What that really means for us and for me is for you to remember Christ's love for you. You see, it's not simply my body is broken, remember me. I shed my blood for you, so you better remember my blood. That's not the point, is it? Point is, those things will point toward him, Christ. But what benefit is there that he simply died? But that he died for my sin in my stead, and you need to remember that as you partake in the Lord's Supper. Amazing grace and undeserving mercy for you and your soul. And that is his promise for you today. And we'll pick it up, the second part, next week. Let's pray.